they are still relevant because none of them have been withdrawn until a tax ruling is withdrawn even an old one that's referred to as IT, it still represents the commissioner's views and until it is actually withdrawn. So sometimes rulings get withdrawn because there's a case that's inconsistent or because the legislation changes, but none of these have been withdrawn. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Episode 300 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson, and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Over the next two episodes, let's talk about PSI, Personal Services Income, and PSB, Personal Services Businesses. In this episode, let's talk about the history of PSI. And this is not a history lesson as such, because the ATO rulings, the ITs and TRs Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne will go through, have never been revoked. So they still apply as, of course, do the court cases, and we will discuss with you. And so these court cases and rulings might be the reference you need when trying to sort out a PSI issue. The funniest place to start this whole debate was um, a quote that I came across in a, in a technical paper, which said that uh, since the dawn of time, man has yearned to incorporate to split income with family members and to pay less tax. I, I thought that was quite funny and, and it's probably pretty true, at least for the last um, 50, 60 years or so. Yes, I agree. And it's, pro it's funny to you and me, but probably not funny to normal people. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny is in, the, is in the eye of the, you know, the listener. The older, exactly. And, yeah, exactly. So, exactly. I mean, th this... This area really started to rear up in in really the 60s and 70s. And part of the reason for that was because historically, professional associations generally only allowed professionals to provide services personally or through a partnership of individuals. So in other words, if you were a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant, you couldn't provide services through a company or through a trust. That really surprised me when I read your notes. And that was like this until the late 50s, early early 60s? Yeah, it changed when um, like a lot of the rules were state-based, so changed at different um, times for different professions. But in general, the areas that are now subject to the most scrutiny are those which previously they were, they were required to provide those services through through personal personally or through partnerships that had um, individuals with joint and several liability. So, of course, if you're if you're not allowed to carry on a business through a company or trust, then we we don't have any income splitting problem because there is no income to split. So, the issue really stems from the fact that a company has a lower tax rate than an individual and has had has had a lower tax rate for quite some time. And that discrepancy is getting larger and larger now with the base rate entity rules and the corporate tax rate dropping to 25% as compared to the court, the individual tax rate, which is up to 47%. And so it's the, the development of the, the corporate tax rate and the discrepancy between that and personal rate. And also the the huge popularity of discretionary trusts, which only really became 
a thing in the sort of 1960s in Australia. And of course, with a discretionary trust, you can choose who is entitled to the income each year and therefore who pays the tax. And the classic tax planning strategy is to ensure that talking about high incomes, that everyone's um, marginal tax rates are used up until the, the highest bracket. So typically 180,000 per individual. So that could be mum and dad and children, previously even minors. It could be to companies, it could be to parents, it could be to entities with losses. So um, that's really the benefit and where this, this, re- this area really all began. Can I... Just quickly come back to income splitting, how you said there isn't really a way to income split when you have to operate as a sole trader or as a partnership. But I think there very much is. You just employ half of your family. Well, yes. uh, Yeah. Subject to things that create deductions for the individual and and a service trust arrangement or a service entity arrangement is an extension of that. But yeah, if, if, if the income is going to the individual to start with, then the only way to really reverse that out is to have some sort of deduction to pay someone else if it's a family member or a discretionary trust or something similar. Mm. That's a good point. Yes, and I know you will cover service trusts in more detail later on, but just very quickly, a, a service trust is basically the service trust employs all the employees in the business and let's say the total salary is $1 million, and then the service trust builds administration charges and administration services in general to the business and, for example, then charges $2 million. That's basically the idea of the service trust, that you employ everybody in a trust and then you charge the business. Yep, correct. And in that example, then then the idea is that there would be a deduction of that $2 million to the, to the entity that has the service fee. So the, um, let's just take the individual and then the service trust then has $2 million of income, $1 million of expenses, and therefore can distribute that $1 million as it sees fit to family members and income split generally. So how this all really kicked off in, in a big way was in the 1980s, late 1970s and, and the, the 1980s, there was a number of cases that the commissioner chose to apply the old anti-avoidance rules to, which was known as Section 260 of the Income Tax Assessment Act 1936. So those cases include a case called Pete's case and Tupkoff and cases that are now referred to as the three doctors case. I won't go into the detail of each of those cases, but essentially what they involved was changing from a structure that involved a sole trader to running a business through a discretionary trust or a company owned by a discretionary trust. In essence, these cases generally involved moving from sole trader, income all to the individual, to now all the income going to a discretionary trust and really nothing else changing. It's sort of um, the whole thing is called uh, Friday, Monday. So the business, everything externally looks the same. It's just that now um, all the income's going to a trust rather than to an individual. So I guess you would call these things pretty blatant, I guess, by today's um, by today's standards. So, for example, in in the three doctors' cases, um, 
they were doctors, each essentially were carrying on um, um, a medical practice either alone or in partnership, and then they just transferred it all to a discretionary trust. And then started distributing to family members. Correct. Yep. So these cases went pretty high up in the judicial system and, and they either all went to the full federal court or the high court. And where you got to at the end of all those was um, decisions that Section 260, the old, um, the old Part 4A, operated to essentially make those arrangements null and void because they weren't capable of explanation by reference to sort of ordinary business dealings and they really the 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 i guess the dominant purpose in the current parlance is is the avoidance of tax was the essential feature of those operations yes and they picked those three because they changed from a sole trader to a company it would have been more difficult to argue when the company when the business started directly in a trust but with those three, because they changed, it was easier to attack them. Absolutely. And then we had a series of income tax rulings released by the tax office towards the mid to late 1980s. Um, they're really sort of, I guess, emboldened by the, 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 the results from those cases. We had IT 2121. Uh, we had IT 2330. IT 2503 and IT 2639. And they all give guidance on can income be split and what's the risk of either Section 260 or Part 4A applying. And do we still need to refer to these ITs? Are they still relevant or are they basically now overridden by the PSI routes we have? That's an excellent question. So the answer to that is they are still relevant because none of them have been withdrawn. They're still um, so until a until a tax ruling is withdrawn, even an old one that's referred to as IT, it still represents the commissioner's views and um, until it is actually withdrawn. So sometimes rulings get withdrawn because there's a case that's inconsistent or because the legislation changes, but none of these have been withdrawn. One point that's really important to come out of these 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 old 1980s tax rulings are that the commissioner considers that although those cases that we talked about involved the transition from sole practitioner or sole trader to a corporate or trust structure, they essentially say that the same result should apply. It's a new business uh, or a new operation without, so essentially if it's, if it's just from day one, it's a trust, not they were employees and then they moved to a trust structure. So the ruling says it would be an odd result if a salary and wage earner changed employers and was able to structure the new employment along the same lines as the medical practitioners in the doctor's case without attracting the operation of Section 260. Until such time as it is shown by court decisions that the position is otherwise it is proposed to adopt the view that Section 260 applies in cases of this nature. So whenever you change from a sole trader to a company, that's that's what the this summary basically says. Whenever you change from a sole trader to a company and you receive employment contracts that you otherwise wouldn't receive in the free market, then the old Section 260 would apply, which is now Part 4A. Yeah, well, to take a more extreme example, let's say... Um, 
So what this says is if, if you had a solicitor, let's say, who's an employee of a, a, a large firm, for example, and decides to leave and set up their own practice, they're doing the same job essentially, but now they're operating through a company or trust. What this says is that section 260, which is now part 4A, could apply to that situation because what the commission is saying it was is well if they couldn't just change for their existing if they couldn't just change sole trader to a company why should the fact that they're with a new employer change that so which is a, a pretty important point to note what came out of these cases and a related case is Phillips case from the late 1970s which endorsed or uh, supported the view that service arrangements were permissible. So we talked about those a little earlier, but just to recap, what those involve is an entity that provides services. They may be, uh, so it may employ people, it may rent premises, it may own equipment uh, and other things like that. And then that service entity provides those things to the operating entity. That's charged with a fee, and that fee is is some sort of uh, uh, generally some sort of a markup on on the actual cost. Because if it wasn't anything higher than the actual cost, there of course wouldn't be any income splitting benefit out of doing so. And they accept that. Yeah. So the case of Phillips case from 1978 that involved that exact scenario. I believe it was law. It was a law, law firm as well, and they the court the question was was actually over whether or not the service fee was deductible for the the operating entity, the, the billing entity. And the court said that it was deductible because the charges were realistic and they weren't in excess of commercial rates. So it doesn't, it's not authority for the proposition that any expenditure in service fees is always deductible. It's not even authority for the proposition that the avoidance rules can't apply to a service trust arrangement. And the commission has accepted that it is correct. And the commission has released a variety of guides, really providing some safe harbor figures for what can be used. So, and the principle of those is essentially, if it's not grossly excessive and it is connected with the business, then those that that fee should be deductible. Okay, and and I think there are safe harbor rules that the ATO set out, isn't? Um, yeah, there's quite a lengthy guide called the ATO um, guide called Your Service Entity Arrangements, and particularly for there's a particular quite a large section for medical profession on on what is uh, commercially reasonable. So the ATO does provide, I guess, what you'd call um, safe harbor guidelines that that it says would generally be reasonable and they're not going to devote compliance resources and so forth. And I think those are quite generous. You know, the the ATO says a markup of 35 to 50% of gross practice fees is considered reasonable. And then later on in the United States, they say that generally it's only 10% of many costs, but labor is 30%. So I don't know how you get from 10% and 30% to 35 to 50%. But if you just go for the 50%, that is incredibly generous because it basically means that in our example where costs are 1 million, it means the service trust can charge 1.5 million and half a million dollars basically gets shifted out of the business into the trust and can then be distributed to family members. That would be good. Um, 
but it's based on the gross practice fees for those 35 to 50%. Ah, I see. So yes, of course. If the practice fees are $1 million, then a fee of 500000 can go across. Now, that doesn't say anything about what the actual costs are for the service entity because the service entity, of course, is going to actually have costs. So the benefit of it is in that example would be 500000 less what the actual costs are. And now it makes sense. That's why... Unfortunately, that would be a lot better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was wondering how the 10% and uh, 10% for many costs and 30% for labor, how that uh, translated to 50%. Now, of course, I understand because it's 50% of gross practice fee and not 50% of labor costs. Yeah, so so essentially what that what that gives you is an ability to divert some income which has been more or less accepted by the ATO so long as that amount is a commercially reasonable charge. So really it can't be too much. Yes, so it can be 30% of labor. So in our example of $1 million of salary, you can charge $1.3 million to the um, business. Yep, and there's a quite a detailed ruling called TR 2006-2, which talk about service entity arrangements. It, it also says that Part 4A shouldn't be of a concern when those arrangements make objective business sense. But what is important is there needs to be an alignment of form or substance. You can't just put a service agreement in place which says that the service entity is going to do all these things and it does none of those things. So it, it does actually need to actually be done. So so we've had dawn of time, everyone wants to split income, changes in rules regarding professional partnerships and who can actually earn the income. We then had a bunch of cases which mainly went towards the tax office on the application of the old section 260. We had the service trusts, which is sort of there's authority that those work. Probably the only standout case was was a little later on, was which was which was Motchkin's case from 2002, which was although the taxpayer wasn't it, pretty complex case and the taxpayer wasn't successful in every single aspect, but it did involve a taxpayer moving from a more exposed business structure to a uh, corporate structure. And the court did accept that the dominant purpose of doing that was not to obtain a tax benefit, it was to get things like limitation of liability and other company benefits that wouldn't is not available to a sole trader. Yeah, is timing of the distribution of profits, is that a valid reason? So in a company, of course, you can park profits at the company tax rate and decide later on yeah, when and how you want to distribute. Is that a valid reason that is not for tax reasons? Well, I, I mean, that is still sort of a tax reason, I guess, because that's just talking about when the tax is actually paid. But I guess largely these things haven't actually been tested. We had some very blatant cases, which the ATO won, and we haven't had a lot of other things since then. So I would say in some sense, the jury is still out on on some of those aspects. And, and I'll come back to them as, as we sort of canvas through the history of, of the more recent things that have happened. So from there, there was a quite a seminal report into the Australian tax system, which you may have heard of previously, it was called the Ralph Hort, the Ralph Review. And it was an extensive look through the taxation system in Australia, it made a number of recommendations, a lot of which have not been taken up. For example, there was a recommendation to tax trusts companies. Now that, that hasn't gone anywhere. That was released in July, 1999. And one of the recommendations what it was that it made was that contractors shouldn't be able to artificially divert income to other people because employees can't 
divert income to other people. So contractors shouldn't either. And contractors shouldn't be able to claim deductions that employees can't can't claim, basically. So what the Ralph report recommended was a series of codified rules that sets out the situations in which income derived by a contractor is personal services income and therefore is attributed to the individual who provided those services. Now, in some sense, the purpose of those rules is really to codify the existing quote unquote rules to ease the compliance burden on the ATO. So prior to the PSI rules, in order for the ATO to run any case like this, they would have had to argue that either that it was salary and wages because the person was an employee or to apply section 260 or what's now um, part for A, which is a, you know, it's, it's not the easiest exercise to do those things. So it was thought, let's put in place some codified rules that really set out the boundaries of when income will be attributed to individuals and when it won't be. There was actually criticism that the rules that were actually legislated in April 2000 were weaker than those proposed in the Ralph Review. Welcome back. So the PSI rules we now have were criticized right from the start. It seems they had a pretty rough start in life. And the road has continued to be rough and bumpy, as you will see in the next episode, episode 301, when we discuss the latest court cases and also the very controversial PCG 2021-D2. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. <music>